Uh, please join me, if you have your Bibles with you, in turning to the book of Luke. Tonight we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. For the past couple of Sundays, we've been considering the first Christmas hymns. Uh, we heard the ponderings of Mary's heart in the Magnificat, and we heard the blessing of Zechariah as he rejoiced in what the Lord was doing by giving him a son. And tonight we are going to hear about that wonderful, blessed evening when the Lord Jesus was announced to the shepherds that first Christmas day. Now, for those of you who uh, probably already know this, Christmas Day originally was not December 25th. Most likely, it was sometime in March. But the very first Christmas we celebrate was the first time that God himself entered into not the earth, because he experienced life with us in some ways in the Old Testament. God entered the Old Testament by communicating through the prophets. He entered in, see him communicating, for example, with Moses on top of Mount Sinai. But when we talk about God entering earth, we are talking about God becoming one of us. God becoming man. And tonight we are going to be talking about Jesus Christ and earth. I'm actually going to be reading our text from the New International Version tonight because I believe it gives us the best and most accurate linguistically uh, translation to the angel's song. So please follow along now as I read. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room of them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, watch over their flocks at night, and an angel of the Lord appeared, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And the angel said, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will be of great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they were told. Now, in order to properly understand the song that the angels have sung to us back here in this passage, we need to actually go to the beginning of the chapter. Uh, actually, we need to rewind even farther. We need to go all the way back to the Old Testament. This song is about darkness, at least to an extent. That is the backdrop of Christmas. Isaiah tells us all the way back in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, that the people of Israel were living in great darkness. And he says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. Well, what darkness is he talking about here? What is it that he is saying these people live in? Is he just talking about the sorrow of loneliness? Is he talking about discouragement? Is he talking about purposelessness? No, he's not talking about that at all. He is talking about the fact that we live apart from God. We live in a way that is separate from who God is. 
That's when we sing, hark the herald angels sing. It reminds us that we were fast bound in sin and what? Nature's night. Without Christ, we are trapped in our darkness. The New Testament actually has much to say about this notion of light and darkness. Eventually, Jesus Christ will claim himself to be what? The light of the world. The song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, has one verse that says, O come thou day spring. Well, what is that? It is the source of day. It is the source of light. It is the source of our ability to acknowledge what is truly real and truly around us. Without Jesus, there is no light. There is no way to God. There is no illumination for the soul. Christmas can be understood only in light of Jesus Christ, only against the backdrop of this bad news. Otherwise, the nativity just becomes some kind of a heartfelt, nice, warming story about how there was an innkeeper who didn't allow this couple in, and then they found some kind of respite in a barn. Well, as nice as that story is, it has no meaning to you of any other narrative in the world unless this child was unique, unless this child truly was the Son of God. Consider what Isaiah says. The Old Testament prophet who was entering into the throne room, this man who would venture, I would venture to guess, is probably the greatest uh, person if we were to compare us to him, No one in this room compares to him in terms of holiness or righteousness or obedience to God. Yet this man says, I am a man of unclean lips when he encounters God. And I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. How many of us could stand up before God and say, look at me, I am pure, I am clean, I am holy. The book of Hebrews says that every one of us stands naked and exposed before a holy God. He is pure and perfect and righteous, and we are not. Isaiah felt the tension and the terror An unholy people cannot survive the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. Psalm 68 verse 2 refers to unholy people as the enemies of God. And we hear these chilling words. It says, as smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away, O Lord. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. Here he is describing what we deserve, what you and I deserve. Not only can the wicked not enjoy God or dwell with him, they are also responsible to pay him back for all of the sins that they have committed. We are guilty before him. We have broken his laws, and the wages that we have earned for our sins is death. Merry Christmas, everybody. Christmas without Jesus is darkness. And we are all doomed to eternal conscious punishment, continuing on in our darkness forever. That is why Christmas is such good news. That is why the birth of Jesus is so significant. Every single word that the angels declare is amazing and significant. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now take note that in that small section, in just three sentences, he uses three different titles for this child that is to be born. Jesus is referred to as Savior, Messiah, and Lord. That is the identity of the child to whom the angels were singing. This was no ordinary baby. This was the birth upon which the hinges of all history have turned. Who is this that arrived? He is the Savior which means he saves you from the judgment you have earned. He is the Messiah, which means he frees you and delivers you from slavery to sin. And he is the Lord, which means he rules as your absolute and benevolent monarch. 
Now, let's break down the actual lyrics here of the angel's anthem. So far, we've just talked about the lead-up. We've talked about the introduction. If you've ever been to a concert, you know that bands will do this. They will play a song, but before they do, they like to talk about the song. They like to talk about the, the reasons they wrote the song, or they like to talk about the point of the song, as if you might not get it. Well, here they've given you the introduction, but now... They are going to actually sing to you the song that we are going to explore today, the song that the theologians call the Gloria. Glory to God in the highest heaven, they begin. Now there's a transition that takes place that we should not, not miss here. One angel makes the announcement, but then it says there is an explosion of exaltation as if all of heaven cannot help but join in and sing this song. Now, we don't know how many angels are here in the sky. It just says there is a multitude of heavenly hosts. Quite literally, that means heavenly armies. These are not just like when you see the little cherubs on television or Hallmark cards. These are warriors, and they are singing a war song. Our ruler is here. The king has come. The mighty one will save. And they fill the sky. What do we know about angels from the Bible? Well, we know that every time they show up, they incite fear in the hearts of people. How do we know this? Because every single time they show up, they constantly say, don't be afraid. And guess what? If they're saying that, there's a reason to say that. People are trembling. People are fearful. And the people of Israel in particular know the wild nature of the power of these angels because they would know the Old Testament and they would know that in 2 Kings chapter 19 there was one angel that killed 185,000 people in one night. They know angels are terrifying. And the shepherds, as good Jewish citizens living in the heart of Israel, would know that story very well. And that's just one angel, and now the sky is literally overflowing with these heavenly beings. These shepherds saw something incredible in the skies that night. But what we see in this story is amazing, because when they walked away at the end of the night, they don't mention the angels at all. When they go to tell everyone, it's not the angels that they are excited to speak about. It is not what they saw above them in the sky. It is what they saw below them in the manger that caused them excitement to go and declare what it is they had seen. Jesus far surpasses what was happening in the sky that evening. Jesus is the point of the angel song, and thankfully it was received by these lowly shepherds well. Think about this for a moment. From the time of Adam... All praise and honor and worship by men that was good and true and righteous, all of it was directed heavenward. Now, heaven is looking down and is declaring worship and honor towards this one that is in the stable. Heaven turns its attention towards earth to pour out this praise to the newborn king. The first line of the song is glory to God in the highest. Do you realize that that seemingly simple act of being born was an act of obedience by Jesus that displayed infinite humility? This is the highest of exalted rulers. This Jesus is the king of the universe. And as we sang before tonight, how low was our Redeemer brought? He was made low, humbled to the point of absolute dependence. As one hymn states, hands that set each star in place, shaped the earth in darkness, Cling now to his mother's breast, vulnerable and helpless. By doing this, God the Son glorified the Father. He gave glory to his Father in heaven. He obeyed him and set out on his mission to live a perfect life in place of sinners. 
I like how J.C. Ryle describes this in his commentary. He says, Now is come the highest degree of glory to God, by the appearing of his Son, Jesus Christ, in the world. These words that the angels were singing proved to be the mission of Jesus. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he prays to the Father and says these words, which can be found in John 17, 4, I have glorified you on earth by accomplishing all the work that you gave me to do. What was his mission? His mission was to glorify God the Father. So contrary to so much of what you see in this season, even in Christmas materials produced by Christians, the primary purpose of Christ coming into the world was to give glory to God the Father. But God is always working multitudes of purposes at the same time. He has many things that he is always constantly multitasking on. And one of those great purposes, according to this song, was not only to give glory to God in the highest heaven, but also to give peace on earth. Now, this is perhaps one of the most misunderstood phrases that is bandied about this time of year. While we are talking about music, everyone from John Lennon to Jay-Z have sung about peace on earth. Uh, from the mamas and the papas all the way down to Miley Cyrus, there is an idea of what peace on earth looks like. In our modern culture, the notion of peace on earth has been heavily tied to this kind of coexist notion. The idea that if we just hold our own beliefs, but we never talk about them, and we keep them to ourselves, then we can have peace on earth. It's this misguided idea that non-confrontation is the same thing as peace. But this hippy-dippy-esque version of peace is certainly not what the angels had in mind as they were singing. And even in the time of Christ, when he was born, there was a certain kind of peace that was acknowledged. There was something called the Pax Romana. The Romans were famous for peace. The idea was that they had subdued everyone within their empire, and no one inside that empire would ever go to war with one another. But as author Arnaldo Mamigliano is, uh, says in an article, the most dangerous baby is the title. He says, Caesar only gave peace as long as it was consistent with the interests of the empire and the myth of his own glory. In other words, the Pax Romana was not interested in individuals. It was not peace by reconciliation by, between enemies. It was a peace that was a peace by force. And beyond the military nature of this Pax Romana, there was something even deeper that it failed to do. The Stoic philosopher Epictetus, who was not a Christian, by the way, but was one who was a contemporary of Luke, the author of the book of Luke, wrote, While the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, the emperor is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of the heart, for which man yearns more than ever for outward peace. Now, there's a restlessness that exists within every person. As Augustine said in his confessions, you, speaking of God, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. There can be no internal peace until we come to know this child in the manger who made us and who would eventually die for his people. God can and God does provide that kind of peace. But I actually don't think that even that is the kind of peace the angels are speaking about in this song. I am convinced that this peace that they are referencing is the peace that is needed between God and man. God has called us his enemies. We have made ourselves enemies by our conduct. Yet God has set terms for peace. He has made a way for reconciliation. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. One party, the offended, going after the offender, and at the cross, bringing them together. 
This is the kind of peace that we most desperately need. And that is the peace that Jesus Christ would earn at the cross. Peace between the perfect God of heaven and sinful people like you and me. But upon whom has this peace been poured out? The angels sing, peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. Now there's a major question that is raised here. If you're reading another translation, this part of the verse may look a little bit different. Without getting technical, I do think that it's important to note that this is definitely the best rendering of the text from Greek into English. The main problem with the translation that says goodwill toward men is primarily that it fails to accurately portray the scope that is narrowed down here by the Greek. In order to help explain this, let me borrow the words of commentator Phil Riken, who says, This piece is not for everyone, but only for the people whom God pleases to bless. The Gloria is often taken as a promise of universal salvation, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But as surprising as it may seem, this song actually teaches us the doctrine of election. Theologian Darnell Bach actually adds this note. He says, the phrase, with whom he is pleased, is actually a technical phrase in first century Judaism for God's special people, those on whom God has poured out his favor. Whenever you find that in the Old Testament is a reference to the nation of Israel, when you come to the New Testament, it is a reference to his saved people. Let me explain by asking this question. With whom is God pleased? Well, we know from the Bible that there is one person with whom he is pleased. We find that at the baptism of Jesus Christ. We see that when he is brought to John and the Lord directs him by the Holy Spirit to go down to be baptized, we see that God speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But who else is pleasing to God? If they are pleasing to him, what makes them pleasing to him? If we begin to unravel this thread, we arrive at the reality that left to our own devices, we are completely incapable of pleasing God. So if this promise is that only those who please God will receive his peace, then peace is limited exclusively to Jesus. The reality is that this is much more merciful and gracious, that God has chosen some people to know him rather than to offer generic universal call, hey, just come and check it out. Now, you might respond and ask, how can you say that everyone would reject this good news? How can you say that some would not jump on the idea? Well, let's consider the fact. Jesus, the light of the world, has come into the land of deep darkness. Shouldn't everyone see him and come around him and say, yes, you are the king? Shouldn't everyone who hears of him and see him doing these miraculous things follow him? Shouldn't they hear his teachings of truth and bow the knee to him? Shouldn't everyone be convicted of his, by his preaching and repent? Shouldn't everyone lift him up and exalt him as Lord of all? They should, but they don't. The book of John tells us why they don't. John chapter 3, 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. We love darkness. Unless God opens our eyes to the truth, we will continue to love our darkness. If your Christmas traditions are anything like mine, then you're going to go home and sometime tomorrow you and your family are going to find some packages around the tree and you are going to take them out from under that fake conifer and you are going to unwrap them and you're going to try to discover what is inside of that paper that somebody has meticulously covered them with. And those gifts that you received are going to fall into one of four possible categories. They are either going to be gifts that you want that you also need or they're going to be gifts that you want, but you just don't need, superfluous things. Or they're going to be gifts that you need, but you don't want, 
necessary things. I remember when I was nine years old and my grandparents gave me knee socks for Christmas, which today I would love, but when you're nine, not so much. Gifts that you don't need is the fourth category, but you also don't want. The kind that you get, like at a white elephant gift exchange, you're like, do I actually have to take this home or can I just put it in the dumpster as I walk out the door? Is that okay? Can I do that? Is that part of the rules? Jesus is the greatest gift that God could give to the world. He was literally coming here to live among us, and yet he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And for most of the people that Jesus ever encountered and most of the people that ever hear the gospel story, Jesus is a gift that they desperately need, but they do not want. But by God's grace, he does open the eyes of some. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. This amazing truth can actually be seen as it is played out in the passage we just read in, in the chapter this morning. We're all probably going to fail to understand just how disgusting shepherds are. Shepherds are gross. I don't know if you've ever spent a lot of time around sheep. Sheep are gross. Uh, these people were not hygienic people. Shepherds were considered the lowest rung of society. The only people who were thought of as less honorable than them were tax collectors and lepers. Certain professions will automatically earn you a bad reputation. We say, curse like a sailor for a reason, right? In those days, it was shepherds who were considered untrustworthy. They were often vulgar. They were uncouth. They were used to living outside of normal society all the time. The writings that we have about shepherds in Jesus' day speak about them as though they were no better than thieves. Phil Riken refers to them as working-class sinners. And beyond that, these men by being shepherds, were automatically put into a category considered unclean. Think about that. These people, yes, they were unclean physically, were considered spiritually unclean. The religious rulers of Israel had declared that these people were in a perpetual state of ceremonially, being ceremonially unclean because of their profession. How weird is that? These people, because they worked with death and fecal matter, could not take part in temple worship, even though they were the ones growing the sheep that would eventually be sacrificed at temple worship. Yes, these men were the ones to whom the angels were commanded to declare the birth of Christ. It was this group of men that were the first, outside of Mary and Joseph, to welcome the Messiah into the world. But why them? Why not someone else? Why not anyone else? The only answer we can give to this is... Because God chose them. Because God decided to tell them. If you know Christ, you should wonder, why me? Why would God open my heart to believe in him? Why would God convict me of sin and call me to repentance? Why would the Holy Spirit draw me to himself? Why me? And of all the questions that I can answer theologically, this is one I will not ever be able to answer. I don't know why God saved me. And if you are a Christian, I do not know why he saved you other than he is gracious and he is good. Praise God, he loves sinners. The only answer that you'll ever be able to offer up is that God is merciful to me, a sinner. He has mercy upon me, and that is all. The scripture teaches us, Exodus 33, 19, he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will have compassion upon whom he will have compassion. 
We were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but the will of God, John 1.13. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy, Romans 9.16. The angels sang that there would be peace for everyone upon whom God's favor rests. It's a promise. But what does that mean for you? Well, if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I want to speak directly to you for a few minutes. First, I want to thank you for coming this evening. I'm really glad that you're here with us. But I want to invite you to see Jesus for who he is. He is not just some kind of lawn decoration that people forget to put out in their manger scene. Before time began, he was there. He created all things, and by all things, by him all things hold together. The Bible says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Please look upon this baby in the manger and see the effort that God made on our behalf to save us. You might say to yourself, look, I'm just not interested in getting to God by way of Jesus. Well, there is no other way. As one pastor once said, if God provided a thousand ways to himself, that kind of person would ask for a thousand and one. God has made a way. He has made the way. He has given Jesus Christ, and there is nothing else. Come to Bethlehem and see Christ the Lord, the newborn king. See the God-man who would give his life that you would not die and see death. See the king of glory who was raised on the third day and who lives even now to be your savior. I plead with you, repent and call on the name of the Lord. And if you do, you will be saved. It's a promise. To those of us who are here and do know Christ, I want to encourage you to see how we should respond this Christmas by showing you how the shepherds responded to this night. Look at what happened when they encountered the Messiah. When they had seen him, it says in verse 17, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. What was their response? Well, we see three things that they do. We see that they tell everyone. You know, Bethlehem was a small town, these guys were excited about it. As far as we know, no one else was. They were not the only people that were told. They were just the only people that were told by angels. Uh, you are not the only people that have been told the gospel. But there are many people who will hear, and they will not go see Jesus. They will not go respond like the shepherds did. They will not respond by bowing the knee to the Messiah. But notice also, secondly, they couldn't, they couldn't help but glorify and praise God. Well, if that's not a picture of the Christian life, then I don't know what is. Their response is to do exactly what the angels were doing earlier. We see this, this king, this Messiah, this Christ child, and all we can do is pour out glory to God in the highest. Well, church, we are called to dedicate ourselves to spreading the good news around your Christmas tree. If your hearts and your mouths are filled with the word of God, this king who was born to us might be glorified this Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would encourage our souls, that you would give us grace, you would give us peace, you would give us joy. Help us, Lord, to love you, to live for you, to worship you well. We thank you for Jesus who was born to give us the second birth. We thank you for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.